So take your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 46 through 40, through 55. And I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, Mary's Magnificat, as you will understand better in a few minutes. Before we look at the text, let's frame our thinking a little bit in light of the world in which we live. The American Atheist annual Christmas-themed billboard went up on December 1, and it took a jab at our president as well as Christian people. There's a picture of a nativity scene, and in big letters it says, Just skip church, it's all fake news. Then under that it says, Happy Holidays from American Atheists. Looking back over the years at some of their other billboards, one of them said, You know it's a myth, this season celebrate reason. Another one has a picture of Jesus, Santa Claus, and the devil. And the caption reads, 37 million Americans know myths when they see them. What do you see? Another one says, who needs Christ during Christmas? And then in big letters, nobody. And Christ has a line through it. And I noticed this year there's a picture of a child. Maybe you've seen it. And it says, Dear Santa, all I want for, for Christmas is to skip church. I'm too old for fairy tales. So sad, isn't it? The musings of the spiritually dead. I'm reminded of Psalm 14, verse 1, where we read that the fool has said in his heart, There is no God. And the term fool refers to a person who is so comprehensively blind that they have a conscience that's completely severed from the things of God. I think of John 3 and verse 18, where we read, He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Well, for the redeemed, this season is an opportunity for us to express the doxologies of our soul. This is an opportunity for us to reflect upon the incarnation of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. When God took on human flesh to die in our stead that we might be reconciled to God. So therefore, every carol we sing is a doxology of our soul. Every gift we give represents the gift that we have received from God through Christ. And every opportunity that we have to fellowship with family and friends is, is yet a preview of heavenly fellowship and heavenly joy. Every meal is a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb, isn't it? And every nativity scene causes us to just get lost in the wonder of God's love for sinners. And like no other passage in all of Scripture, we see these these great wonders expressed in Mary's hymn of praise. It's called the Magnificat, because that is the 
first word of the Latin translation, Magnificat anima mia dominum, which means my soul magnifies the Lord. In the Latin Bible, that's what you would read. And seldom can we learn much from a teenager these days, but we certainly can from this probably 13-year-old young lady. And we would do well to sit at her feet. There are 15 discernible quotations from the Old Testament in her song, which demonstrates the kind of home she was raised in, which demonstrates the priority of the word of God in that home, and therefore the home in which Jesus was born and raised. And here we have just an animated doxology that celebrates God's grace, his omnipotence, his holiness, his justice, and especially his faithfulness. So let me read this to you again this morning, beginning in verse 46 of Luke 1. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Well, this morning I would like for you to join me in examining this heartfelt worship from this young lady and compare your worship with hers. You know, worship is one's heart attitude of reverence and adoration of God. And it can be expressed in many ways. And we want to ask ourselves, is my worship acceptable to God? Is it sincere? Is it one of reverence? Is it one of of heartfelt adoration? Because I want to be pleasing to him. We know at the core of worship, as Jesus said, God is only pleased with those who worship him in spirit and in truth. John four twenty three. Spirit refers to the human spirit, the, the internal subjective part of man. You see, acceptable worship is not external conformity to, to ceremonies or to rituals, but a genuine expression of the inner man and the attitude of the heart. But the subjective must be regulated. It must be informed by the objective truth of the word of God. In fact, if we believe things that are contrary to God, contrary to scripture, errant Bible doctrines or whatever, he is not pleased. Or if we pretend to worship him when in fact we are harboring egregious sins in our heart and idols in our heart, he is not pleased. So we want to take a look at Mary's heart that is expressed here 
and examine our worship in light of hers. I want to do this by looking at just three categories of her hymn of praise. Number one, we will look at her worship and see how it was spontaneous despite her circumstances. Secondly, her worship was God-centered, not man-centered. And finally, her worship rehearsed God's mercy, past, present, and promised. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will, will use these great truths to not only refine your worship, but deepen it, especially during this Christmas season. So, as you will recall from our scripture reading a few minutes ago, God has dispatched the angel Gabriel to this 13-year-old Jewish girl from Nazareth, betrothed to Joseph, and told her that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her, and she is going to conceive, and that she would be the mother of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the Most High God. And as added confirmation, knowing that the young maiden would need another woman to talk with and someone who would believe her story, right? God sends his servant Gabriel to tell her in verse 36, and behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. It's amazing. Her 80-year-old relative who was barren was also now pregnant with John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. Nancy and I were talking this week, and she said, You know, at the top of my list, obviously beyond seeing the Lord in glory, at the top of my list, I, I cannot wait to speak to Mary. And I thought, yeah, I can understand why. It's an amazing thought. I mean, think about it. Imagine having the creator and the sustainer of the universe growing inside of you. The one who upholds all things by the word of his power inside of you. Imagine what must have been going through her mind when she finds out from an angel that she is going to be the mother of the Messiah. I'm sure she was thinking, who in the world is going to believe this? What am I going to tell Joseph? Right? I mean, put yourself in that position. What am I going to tell my family and friends? I mean, God has not spoken to our, our people for, for 400 years. And now they're going to believe me that this angel has come and said these things? You know, according to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 22, this would be punishable by death. Of course, by her time, it was, you could divorce, but it was certainly, and it'd be an embarrassment. There would be disgrace. There could be banishment. There could be poverty, which could lead to death. So she had to have been filled with all manner of fear. So she travels to the hill country, to a city in Judah, to talk to Elizabeth, Elizabeth who blesses her. And I, I have to think about it. What, what does this, this young virgin do? 
Does she collapse in a pool of tears? Does she throw up her hands in despair? Does she beg Elizabeth to hide her? No, her heart explodes with genuine worship. It's an amazing thought. She's not ruled by fear. She's ruled by faith. And despite her fear of scandal and and cruel rejection, despite the inevitable suspicions of her beloved Joseph, despite the inevitable anxieties of of a poor young woman suddenly thrust into an unknown future, she is rich in faith. Faith being the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You know, often we find ourselves in great difficulties, difficult circumstances, and many times it's easy to just cower in fear, right? In in the midst of those types of scenarios, the last thing on our mind in many cases is to really praise the Lord, but not so here with Mary. Her heart could not be silenced by fear because it was too full of faith. So number one, we see that her worship was spontaneous despite her circumstances. Notice verse 46. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. Now the terms soul and spirit are used interchangeably throughout scripture to describe the immaterial part of man. The inner person, the core of who we really are. And here Mary uses uh, a poetic device known as Hebrew parallelism in which the same idea is repeated using different but synonymous words to reinforce what she is saying. So her soul now is just, is just erupting with exaltation, which is the inevitable response of someone who worships the Lord in spirit and in truth. But but how could this happen? I mean, think about this. For a young girl this age, facing such an enormous challenge, what animates anyone to worship the Lord in the midst of all of this chaos in her life? May I suggest at least two reasons? First of all, she had a deep love for God because she was saturated with his word. As I said earlier, she quotes the Old Testament 15 times in this poem, which proves she was a dedicated student of scripture, even though, by the way, they didn't have a copy of it. So how did they know it? They memorized it. They listened very carefully. They were taught well. A person only does this if they truly love God, and a person that truly loves God is going to love his word. Dear Christian, let me be clear. Your love for God can be measured by your love for his word. Mary quotes portions of Hannah's prayers, as we read in in 1 Samuel, Leah's prayers in Genesis 30. And in this Magnificat, we find references to the law, to, she quotes from the Psalter, from the prophets. So her soul is filled with an an intimate and an accurate knowledge of the lover of her soul, as we will see. And again, when most Christians encounter some great trial, 
It's easy for us to respond in fear and confusion and anger and despair. Why? Because we really don't love the Lord that much. We've got so many other important things in our life, and therefore we really don't know that much about him. Therefore, there is not a a wellspring of truth to draw upon in those times of spiritual drought and dehydration. Ask yourself, could I write a hymn of praise like this? And if not, it's probably because your love for him is deficient. He's not high and lifted up in your mind and You really don't care that much about who he is and what he says about himself from his word. And if I can put it this way, lovingly and as kindly as I know how, if you are unable to take your time and put pen to paper and express at least some similar hymn of praise, you will never spontaneously erupt with one, especially in times of great difficulty. Beloved, the more your heart is filled with an intimate and accurate knowledge of the Lord your God, the more spontaneous your worship will be, even in times of uncertainty and fear. That's why it's so important for us to do what we're doing right here, right now. But she not only had a deep love for God and was saturated with his word, but I would also add she was preoccupied with the glory of God. Notice verse 46. She says, my soul exalts the Lord. Again, obviously, Mary was familiar with with Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2, where in verse 1, Hannah prayed, my heart exalts in the Lord. By the way, you young ladies, it's very important that you become familiar with the godly women in the Bible so that you can reflect their attitude of worship in your heart as well. And then, like Mary, you will receive inspiration from women like Hannah, right? And you will respond accordingly. In verse 48, her statement, for he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave, is a paraphrase of, Hera's, of, of Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 1.11. And then at the end of verse 48, she echoes Leah's words recorded in Genesis 30 and verse 13, when she goes on to say, quote, for behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Would that we all have such familiarity with the word. For it's from the wellspring of the word that acceptable, spontaneous worship will flow. Think of Psalm 1914, where David said, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And when that is true in a person's heart, the result will be, as recorded in Psalm 103.1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Now, again, notice how she was preoccupied with the glory of God. Verse 46, my soul exalts the Lord. Exalts means to to magnify, to make great, to glorify. And because it's in the present tense in the original language, it means that glorifying God from the very core of her being was 
a habitual, continuous reality, regardless of her circumstances. You see this in people who, for example, have an insatiable appetite for the word of God. Now, please understand, magnifying the Lord was the preoccupation of her heart long before she became the recipient of such divine favor. It wasn't like it wasn't there, and all of a sudden she finds out that this is going to happen, and now she's magnifying the Lord. No, hers was a spontaneous eruption of praise. And too often we think of worship as something that, that, that happens in the church, kind of outside of us. We think of, of maybe not so much in our church we think this way, but I know a lot of Christians think this way, that worship has to do with candles and rituals and religious icons and certain ambiance and something that must be induced by music, for example, um, which is not a biblical concept. God has not given us music to induce worship. He has given us music to express worship. Huge difference. Because the glory of God was the theme of her soul. It was the theme of her song. So she begins by saying, my soul exalts the Lord. Verse 47, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. You see, this is what is acceptable to God. A spirit that is rejoicing in God as Savior. Rejoiced here is a very strong word in the original language. It denotes the idea of, of just utter jubilation, if I can put it that way. An internal celebration of supreme joy. And, and this is... This is why she was so preoccupied with his glory. She is fully aware of who he is, what he does, and what he will do as the coming Messiah. Ask yourself, dear friends, does this characterize your heart? How often does your soul erupt in spontaneous worship? Because of your love of God, are you preoccupied with his glory? Not just publicly. It's easy to put on a show publicly, but privately. If not, your worship will be contrived at best and counterfeit at worst. Not only was her worship spontaneous despite her circumstances, but secondly, her worship was God-centered, not man-centered. I find it fascinating. There's, there's at least seven attributes of God in her song. She first of all calls him Lord. Kurios in Greek is a designation of, of, the, of the Old Testament name for God, of Yahweh. Verse 46, my soul exalts the Lord, my God, my Savior. So in other words, this is her theme, to magnify Yahweh, the Lord of hosts who rules over all. And one day we know that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. She also speaks of him as the mighty one in verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Likewise, verse 51, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. And certainly she remembers the mighty acts of God over the course of history, his omnipotence over all things. I think of what David said in Psalm 24, verse 8. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. 
And in Luke 18.27, we read, The things impossible with men are possible with God, right? He is our mighty God. Ephesians 3.20, He is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. Thirdly, she says, holy is his name. In verse 49. And we know that holiness is the all-encompassing attribute of God. It speaks of his hidden glory. It portrays his, his infinite otherness. It portrays his consummate perfection, his incomprehensible transcendence, his moral purity, his eternal glory. All of these things are captured in the concept of holiness. Holy is the defining characteristic of his person. So she says, holy is his name. And fourthly, she speaks of him as judge. Notice in verse 51, he has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. Likewise, in verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones Verse 53, he has sent away the rich empty-handed. I think of what the Lord said before he ascended back into glory. He said that all authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In fact, he will be the judge that is seated on the great white throne where those who rejected him will be sentenced. Revelation 20. She also speaks of him as being merciful, number five. In fact, in verse 50, she quotes Psalm 103, 17. She says, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. Verse 54, he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. But not only does she speak of him as being merciful, but sixthly, as a God that is faithful to his covenant promises. Verse 54, he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. We know according to Genesis 22 and verse 18 that God promised Abraham that in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So indeed, indeed, he is a covenant-making, he is a covenant-keeping God. Often in scripture we read, for example, in Exodus 34, 6, he is abounding in loving kindness and truth. Loving kindness translates the, the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed. It's, it, it means loyal love, covenantal love. In fact, one who is a hasid from chesed is one considered loyal to God. That's what the Jewish people would say today. In fact, the name Hasadim has been given to those, ascribed to those who are the most fervently loyal to God, at least in their mind, the strictest of all Jews in contemporary Judaism. I've experienced them. By the way, they hate Christians more than the Nazis because they say that the Nazis killed our bodies, but the Christians take our souls. Tragic thing. And then finally, she praises him as Savior. And from the very start of her hymn of praise, in verses 46 and 47, 
Her focus is on the Lord, her Savior. By the way, not a Savior from her poverty, not a Savior from her bad health, not a, not, not a Savior from her uh, perhaps struggling relationships with Joseph, not a Savior from a disappointing, unhappy life, but a Savior from her sin that separates her from a holy God. In Matthew 1, verse 21, you will recall how the angel then later appears to Joseph. He's tormented in his mind, and the angel puts him at ease, revealing to him that her child had been conceived by the Holy Spirit, not some other man. Verse 21, he says, And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will what? Save his people from their sins. So Mary knew first and foremost that her Messiah was coming to seek and to save that which was lost, as Jesus speaks of in Luke 19, verse 10. Now, contrary to the Roman Catholic dogma of Mary's, quote, immaculate conception, that from the moment of her conception, she was kept free from original sin. Mary understood her own personal need for forgiveness, for undeserved mercy, for undeserved grace, that she might be reconciled to God. Why else would she declare, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior? I mean, truly, her worship was God-centered. It's not man-centered. I know it's easy for us to think, well, well, don't all Christians think this way? Well, not all professing Christians are true Christians, and certainly not all think this way. Several years ago, I remember tuning in to the Fox News television network to hear a pastor who was designated a, quote, evangelical icon, and he was there to deliver a special Christmas sermon. And he presented a a very delicious but distorted version of the gospel based upon his own interpretation of the Christmas story found in the Bible. And unfortunately, it bore little resemblance to the gospel that Jesus preached, the gospel the apostles preached, the gospel Mary understood as I listened carefully to what I what he said, I, I found myself becoming increasingly agitated at the subtle spin on sin and the Savior. And like other politically and religiously correct entrepreneurs bent on attracting seekers, the preacher defined sin in such a way that virtually no one could be offended. The essence of his definition of sin was that sin includes all those things we think and do that rob us of fellowship with God and steal away the happiness he wants us to enjoy. So the good news of the gospel becomes nothing more than God loving us so much that he sent his son to save us from our unhappiness. He had excerpts of interviews on the street that would reinforce his definition of sin. People were asked what they thought they needed to be saved from, which is a good question. Answers included things like, quote, I, needed, I need to be saved from my finances. I need to be saved from my destructive relationships, 
from my job, from myself. One person did say I need to be saved from my sin. But nowhere in the program could you ever hear a clear biblical definition of sin, exposing man's dreadful condition of condemnation before a holy God because he has violated God's law and therefore is in desperate need of a Savior. The emphasis was always man-centered, never God-centered. It's all about man and his needs, not God and his glory. And neither the preacher nor the people on the street ever acknowledged that because of their sin, that everything that they were and everything that they do is fundamentally offensive to a holy God. And apart from God's regenerating, saving grace, they will perish in their sins. The preacher never told that vast audience, television audience, that there is nothing about sinful man that conforms to the moral character and desires of God. His message was basically God exists for you rather than you exist for him. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you and save you from your unhappiness. So ask Jesus to make you successful. Ask Jesus to help you live up to your potential. Ask Jesus to help you fulfill your dreams. Ask Jesus to help you be personally liberated so that you can be all that you can be, so that you can have real purpose in your life. How different from Mary's message in verse 47, where she begins by rejoicing in, quote, God, my Savior. Not God, my life coach. Not God, my investment advisor. Not God, my personal Santa Claus. But God, my Savior. You see, she knew that she was in desperate need of a Savior to be saved from the penalty and the power of sin. And this was the glorious truth that ignited her soul, that the Savior had come. Moreover, she understood that her relationship with God was was not that of a first-round draft pick whose talent he was waiting to develop. But she understood herself as a willing slave that served her master. Notice how she answered Gabriel in Luke 1, 38. Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. Verse 48 as well. She praised God because, quote, he had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. Now, unfortunately, because of the stigma of slavery, most translators replaced slave with servant or bond slave, but the term doulos in Greek literally means slave. It's real simple. Mary understood that. And, of course, a slave's, a slave's <laughs> responsibility was simple. It was to obey the, the commands of, of, of the master without hesitation, and even in the absence of those direct demands, and to basically spend your life doing all you can to please your master making yourself available to do his bidding. Now, beloved, please understand, this is our responsibility to to Christ. 
However, he is a loving master. Think about this. A loving master who purchased our redemption with his very blood and delivered us from the slavery of sin, from the bondage of the kingdom of darkness. And he becomes our loving master. Mary understood this. This is what animated her worship. This was her perspective. It was, therefore, God-centered worship. She understood that she was depraved, not deprived. Remember, the angel of the Lord told Joseph in Matthew one twenty-one that you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Again, not their unhappiness, not their poor self-esteem, not their poverty, not their lack of success, but their sin. I wish the TV preacher would have used that opportunity to tell those people, dear friends, because of your sin, you have violated God's holy law and you are separated from him. And you must acknowledge this. You stand condemned before his bar of justice and there is nothing that you can do to save yourself. And you do not deserve being saved. But because of his great mercy and his love for sinners, God has provided a way not only to forgive you, but to satisfy his demand for justice. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh, to live a perfect life that we could not live, and to die a violent and ignominious death upon a cross so that he could bear the penalty for the sins of all who would believe in him. And this is the exceedingly good news of the gospel. So I invite you to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrate at this season. I invite you to to abandon all of your ambitions, all of your dreams. Forsake the path of of self-determination and self-will and become a willing slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to him as the master of your life. Because of his great mercy, become a living and a holy sacrifice that is acceptable to him. Live for his glory, not yours. But know this, you millions of people listening to me on television, Know this, that he is a loving master, unlike the slave-master relationship of the world that is so wicked. When we become a slave of Jesus Christ, we belong to a master who loves us, who died for us. We become sons and daughters of his family. We are adopted into his family as the children of God. Imagine that. Then he lavishes upon us all manner of both physical and spiritual blessings and grants us eternal life. He makes us the recipients of, of, of an unimaginable inheritance that is reserved in heaven and kept by the power of God. We're joint heirs with Christ. We're citizens of another kingdom. For this reason, we can say with Mary, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his slave. I wish that would have been the message. But of course, they won't allow that on television. 
Well, finally, her worship was also one that rehearsed God's mercy, past, present, and promised. By the way, this was a a common practice in the Old Testament, of Old Testament worship. We see this all the time in the Psalter. First, we know that she praised him for what he has done in her life, what she had already seen. Verse 47, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. And, of course, this is the foundation of all of her praise She's no longer under divine condemnation. She understands that. But next she praises him for the unimaginable blessing of, 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 of choosing her to be the earthly mother of his son. Verse 48, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. The, the idea here of, of being an unworthy vessel of the Lord's attention For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. You know, it's interesting. Mary does not complain about her lowly status, a status that the world is going to to use against her. She did not suffer from poor self-esteem, did she? (laughs) Not at all. Instead, she rejoiced in the fact that God would even notice her especially knowing her creator would be her child and her Messiah would share in her humble state and be born into such an insignificant family, incomprehensible, given our Savior's unfathomable condescension to our lowly estate, who among us has any right to complain of anything. And to be sure, her humiliation was, was short-lived given the blessing that God bestowed upon her, one that all generations remember and count her blessed. But I want you to notice that Mary doesn't limit her praise for what God had done for her alone, but also for what he has done and will do for all who trust in him. In verse 50, she quotes from Psalm 103, verse 17, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. To fear the Lord means to have a deep reverence for Yahweh, the personal name of God, expressed by our submission, our joyful submission to his will as it is revealed in the word. And this should cause all of us to explode in praise. Think of the countless millions of of Yahweh-fearing people who have been the recipient of his mercy. And then in verses 51 and 52, she, she quotes from Psalm 98.1 and Psalm 118.15, which again demonstrates her familiarity with Old Testament Israeli history, ancient history, which, by the way, is essential to worship. If you want to deepen your worship, understand the Old Testament and what God has done. She says, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thought of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. And then in verse 53, she quotes from Psalm 107, verse 9. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. You know, folks, too often our praise is confined to what God has done for us alone in, in our little life. Rather, and by the way, that, that's true, that's wonderful, that's noble, but that's so limiting. Folks, if you really want to praise God, you need to, to back away from this microscopic look at your own little life 
and gaze upon the full panoply, the full spectacle of, of what God has done in creation, in the flood, in, in the, during the times of, of Moses and the Exodus, during Joshua and Judges and Elijah and Elisha and the incarnation and the apostles, the mystery of the church and looking ahead to all that he has planned. That's when you can really get excited about who he is and what he's up to. This is what Mary does. She praises God for what he has done for his covenant people, Israel, and what he will do in the future. I mean, this is eschatological praise. This is the stuff of acceptable worship to God, worship that is done in spirit and in truth. Notice verse 54. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. You see, she understood the unilateral, unconditional, irrevocable, everlasting covenant with Abraham. Remember, it was, it was, it was introduced in, in what, Genesis 12, and it was actually made in, in Genesis 15, and then it was reaffirmed in Genesis 17, and then later renewed with Isaac in, in Genesis 26, and then again in Jacob, with Jacob in Genesis 25. And we know in that covenant, he promised that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ was the descendant from Abraham. She understood that. She understood that the divine blessings and protection for his descendants, the Jewish people, were part of that covenant promise that there would be a nation, that he would make them a great nation, and he would be the father of many nations, that they would have a land, a specific territory, that would ultimately belong to the nation of Israel. And throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, we see repeated affirmations of these promises and that, that will ultimately be fulfilled when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom here upon the earth, a kingdom that will be merged ultimately into the universal and eternal kingdom of God from which it all originated. So Gabriel told Mary in Luke 1.32 that the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And it's for this reason, dear friends, that Jesus has commanded us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In anticipation of this fulfillment, she closes with a final burst of praise, if you will. Notice verse 54. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Oh, what a magnificent hymn of praise. Well, I would challenge you, dear friends, perhaps this week, certainly in the very near future, would you find a quiet place and take out a piece of paper and a pen and write your own hymn of praise? You don't need to even get your Bible out. Just express your heart like Mary did. It doesn't have to be long. I mean, hers was just eight sentences, Right? No one's going to read it unless you want to share it. Maybe you would share it with your family. That'd be a wonderful thing to do. And it's okay if you're not as comprehensive, maybe, as, as Mary. Frankly, not many Christian people are as theologically literate as she was. I mean, few 
Christians share the level of theological acumen as this 13-year-old girl. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? Nancy, I'm with you, honey. I can't wait to meet her. Now, if you simply can't say much, well, it's probably because you don't really love the Lord that much to really get to know him. And so I would challenge you to that end. I want to close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon that spoke to my heart. He said this, I should like to be able to say as long as I live, my soul doth magnify the Lord. I should like to have this as the one motto of my life from this moment until I close my eyes in death. My soul doth magnify the Lord. I would fain preach that way. I would fain eat and drink that way. I would even sleep that way so that I could truthfully say, I have no wish but that God should be great and that I should help to make him great in the eyes of others. Will not you also, dear friends, make this the motto of your life psalm? Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in these eternal truths that speak so profoundly to our heart. I pray that by the power of your spirit, we would all be able to express our own version of Mary's Magnificat. And especially for those that might be here or within the sound of my voice that do not know you as Savior. I pray, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you will bring conviction and that they will see their need to bow the knee to the Lord of glory, the Savior of their sin, that today they might experience the miracle of the new birth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.